Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 13, Deuteronomy chapters 10 and 11. Last week, we ended in the midst of our study of Deuteronomy 10 by discussing this rhetorical but powerful question asked by Moses as he stood on a hilltop in Moab addressing the chosen people. I wish I had Charlton Heston's stature and voice because then I could maybe do that with you. I'll do the best I can being about a foot shorter. (laughs) Moses looked at the people, that sea of Hebrew people below him, and he says, And now, Israel, what does Jehovah your God demand of you? And Moses answered his own question with this instruction. God's redeemed ought to revere Yehovah, walk in his ways, love him, serve him, and obey or keep his laws and his commands. Revere, walk, love, serve, and obey. And so I asked you, a rhetorical question of my own. And believe me, this was a loaded question. Do you wish only to be granted your salvation and then you float through the rest of your life carefree, done with the things of God, believing that your sins are covered anyway, so why worry about it? That is... Do you truly believe that once you trust Yeshua, our our Messiah, you have utterly no further obligations to Him and there will be no consequences for your decisions and actions, or inactions as the case may be? Have you decided that you can completely separate your knowledge of what He has done for you from your worship of Him and from the way you live your life? Let me say without hesitation or doubt that precise implication is rife within the modern, especially modern evangelical church. And it even brings into question whether any form of believer's obedience to the written word is actually legalism and thus a bad thing. And I speak today in firm opposition to such an ungodly doctrine whose basis is nothing more than a desire to distance the Gentile church from the Hebrew Torah and to make the life of a Christian seem as though from the moment of our salvation we have gained the right to retire from the duty to do any more than merely exist while we wait for heaven. Moses says, redeemed of Israel, you have things to do. Modern Christianity says, redeemed of Christ, quit now and save your energy. 
Now we discussed this rather thoroughly last time, so I'm not going to repeat it. But you can rest assured that I'm not going to rest until I've done all I can to persuade you that you do have obligations to the Lord. And that simply feeling love towards Him isn't going to suffice as the proper response to the unmatchable gift of redemption that you've received. It has become a rather standard doctrine in some denominations that God seeks from us only a feeling of love in our hearts and that to do much of anything other to enjoy ourselves in the company of other Christians and maybe attend a worship service once in a while is actually a negative. And I remind you, here in Deuteronomy, God is giving all of these instructions to a people that he's already redeemed. And this is the pattern of God that naturally flows through to our era, as do all of his patterns. First we're redeemed, and only then does he give us commands and instructions. His commands and instructions are not for those who've not already been redeemed. They're not for the unsaved in Christian jargon. Again, his commands and his instruction, which the church at times derisively calls the law, are not for the purpose of redemption. Redemption is a free gift given to whomever God chooses to give it. And it has always been a free gift, even in the time of Moses. The laws of God are for the purpose of instructing redeemed persons on how to live a redeemed life. Further, the Lord demands that there is a way that he be shown love. One of the standard questions that a marriage counselor will ask a husband and wife is, How do you want to be shown love? Most men struggle with that question. Often not even understanding what what it means. But most women will instantly have an answer. And the marriage counselors I'm acquainted with say that central to problems with most marriages is a spouse not being willing to show love to their partner in ways that partner can recognize and accept as Genuine love. The Bible does give us a generalization about this issue of love within human marriage. It says that women should respect their husbands and husbands should love their wives. God's word explains that a wife submitting to her husband is how she shows him respect, which is what equates to love for a man. Alternately, a husband shows his wife the love she seeks by putting her above himself. By demonstrating that he would give up his own life to protect her if needs be. And by being kind and gentle and cognizant of her needs and concerns. Now again, this is of course a generality. But I think I've not run across a married couple that wouldn't agree with that basic premise. Now, of course, as individuals, we each have specific 
things that indicate love to us. For women, often it's simply her husband saying, I love you, verbally, on a fairly regular basis. For others, it might be a surprise remembrance, like a bunch of flowers or an unexpected gift. For a man, it may be as simple as a wife fixing meals for him that she knows are his favorites. Or she does a great job raising their children and caring for their home. Or regularly, she seeks his advice. Maybe even his permission on matters that even he doesn't necessarily believe he ought to be the one who decides. But it shows him respect. And that equals love to a man. But here's the thing. For the woman who craves to hear, I love you but has a husband that simply cannot or will not say it, she's just not being loved in a way she understands his love. I don't care about all the other stuff. And while that certainly doesn't mean that marriage is going to fail, the relationship equally as certain is not going to be as fulfilling as it could be or it's intended to be. So it's the same way in our relationship with God. He has unequivocally told us in the plainest terms how he wants to be shown love. He says that for him, love begins with obedience to his laws and his commands. He says that to revere him, to walk in his ways, to serve him faithfully, and to obey him, that is love. To him. Can we not revere him, not walk in his ways, not serve him, and not be obedient to him, and still love him to some degree? Uh, perhaps from our side of the equation, but not from his. What kind of relationship does that say we have with the Lord if we're insisting we love him, but he says, no, you don't. Let's reread the last few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to read from 10, verse 12 on to the end. So now, Israel, all that Adonai your God asks from you, is to fear Adonai your God, follow his ways, love him, serve Adonai your God with all of your heart and your being. Obey for your own good the mitzvot, commands, and regulations of Adonai which I'm giving you today. See, the sky, the heaven beyond the sky, the earth, everything on it, all belong to Adonai your God. Only Adonai took enough pleasure in your ancestors to love them and choose their descendants after them, yourselves, above all peoples as he still does today. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Don't be stiff-necked any longer. For Adonai your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who has no favorites and accepts no bribes. He secures justice for the orphan and the widow. He loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, you are to love the foreigner, since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You're to fear Adonai your God, serve him, cling to him, swear by his name. 
He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which you have seen with your own eyes. Your ancestors went down to Egypt with only 70 people. But now Adonai, your God, has made your numbers as many as the stars in the sky. After explaining what God requires of his redeemed people, a strange statement is made in verse 16 that we're going to find repeated at regular intervals in the remainder of the Old Testament and then in several key places in the New. It is that the Lord wants something called circumcised hearts more than he wants circumcised foreskins. Now remember, cross out the word heart due to what heart means to us in the 21st century and instead insert the word mind. Because that's what heart meant to the people of the Bible era. So this is saying to us, circumcise our wills, our thoughts, and our mental processes. The illustration is that to circumcise the foreskin of your heart means to remove that protective, even impenetrable covering on your mind and on your decisions that keeps God from entering in. It means to stop being hard-headed and thus blocking the word of God from taking roots in your thoughts. But it's also a dualism. That is, in addition to what I've just explained that it illustrates, it is also explaining that while the circumcision of the flesh is indeed the God-ordained sign of the Abrahamic covenant to be worn by all Hebrew males, a circumcised heart, circumcised mind, should be the inward spiritual companion of that outward fleshly operation. Paul says the same thing some 1,400 years after Moses first said it. In fact, Paul says that a fleshly circumcision without the accompanying change of mind that moves us towards harmony with God is eternally worthless. Further, that since the advent of Messiah, one does not need a fleshly circumcision in order to demonstrate or or achieve the circumcision of the heart. Therefore, in typical Hebrew style, a literary couplet is written because the next words are, so don't be a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked just means stubborn, unresponsive. That is, Moses is saying to Israel that by allowing your heart to be circumcised by the Holy Spirit, you'll no longer be a hard-headed person. Therefore, God's people do not be a nation of stubborn people because you have refused the circumcision of your mind by the Lord. Now, I need you to hear this, please. Your faith in Christ does not necessarily equal a circumcised heart. Your redemption, meaning you have faith that Yeshua died for your sins, doesn't necessarily mean you've had that change of mind that only comes by means of an act of God through the Holy Spirit by making your mind responsive to Him. 
Listen to this passage from the book of Hebrews. Uh, pardon me, the book of Acts. Acts 8.14 When the emissaries in Jerusalem heard that Shomron, Samaria, had received the word of God, they sent them Kepha and Yochanan, Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. For until then, he had not come upon any of them. They had only been immersed into the name of the Lord Yeshua. Then, as Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Huh. See, the Israelites were a redeemed people the instant of the Passover in Egypt. At that moment, they were redeemed. But they hadn't yet received God's laws and commands, and they didn't yet have circumcised hearts. Thus they did great sins out in the wilderness, with thousands of them dying, and God determining more than once to exterminate them all, saved only by Moses' arbitration on their behalf with God. And as believers, we are indeed redeemed the moment we have that simplest faith that Jesus is Lord. However, just as the Israelites needed circumcised minds brought about by an act of God so that they were capable of being obedient to him, so do we. Now Moses continues with his argument as to why Israel should be obedient and pay attention to Yehovah, and it is that God is the greatest of all beings. He uses words that were well understood for that day. Lord of lords, God of gods. Now this language sounds kind of like acknowledgement of multiple gods, with one god, Yehovah, higher than the other gods, even though it's actually a statement of monotheism is what it is. But common language of the day, within the common understanding of the day, is what is needed and used to get a point across. And that's the sense of it here. Okay. But Yehovah is a very unique God who doesn't take bribes, which was customary for those times. And his justice insists that the Israelite widows and orphans be tenderly cared for by all of Israelite society. Even more, God loves those who aren't even part of Israel. And therefore, the stranger, the resident alien that lives among Israel, the ger in Hebrew, must also have food and clothing provided if they have no means to obtain it due to poverty or circumstance. Because God is no respecter of individuals, he's not even impressed with aristocrats. He wants equal justice for all. Okay. Therefore, as the Lord's earthly representatives, Israel is to love the Ger in order to show them that the God of Israel loves the Ger. Now, this should all sound pretty familiar to us. As these are, of course, exactly the same principles that Jesus taught. And it also explains why the Lord made a way for non-Hebrews, Gentiles, to be redeemed. He loves all humanity, 
not just those born to a certain tribe or nation. Yet it is indeed only by means of divine covenants made with a certain people, spawned by Jacob, that foreigners can be redeemed. They, we, don't get a separate Gentile covenant and we also don't get a European Messiah. All right? Apart from Israel's Messiah. Let's move on to chapter 11. Page 209, your complete Jewish Bible. Therefore you are to love Adonai your God and always obey his commissions, regulations, rulings, and mitzvot, commands. Today it is you I am addressing, not your children, who haven't known or experienced that discipline of Adonai your God, his greatness, his strong hand, his outstretched arms, his signs, his actions, which he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to his entire country. They didn't experience what he did to Egypt's army and horses and chariots and how Adonai overwhelmed them with the water of the Sea of Suf as they were pursuing you so that they remain destroyed to this day. They didn't experience what he kept doing for you in the desert until you arrived at this place or what he did to Datan and Afiram, the sons of Eliav, the descendant of Reuben. How the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with their households, tents, every living thing in their company there in front of all Israel. But you have seen with your own eyes all these great deeds of Adonai. Therefore, you are to keep every command I'm giving you today so that you will be strong enough to go in and take possession of the land you are crossing over to conquer. And so that you will live long in the land of Adonai. Uh, the land that Adonai swore to give to your ancestors and their descendants. A land flowing with milk and honey. For the land you are entering in order to take possession of it isn't like the land of Egypt. There, you would sow your seed and then you had to use your feet to operate its irrigation system as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing over to take possession of is a land of hills and valleys which soaks up water when rain falls from the sky. It's a land Adonai your God cares for. The eyes of Adonai your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So if you listen carefully to my commands, which I'm giving you today, to love Adonai your God, to serve him with all of your heart and all of your being, then I will give your land its rain at the right seasons, including the early fall rains and the late spring rains, so that you can gather in your wheat and new wine and olive oil. And I, I will give your fields grass for your livestock with the result that you will eat and be satisfied. But be careful not to let yourselves be seduced so that you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. If you do, the anger of Adonai will blaze up against you. He'll shut up the sky. There'll be no more rain. The ground will not yield its produce. You will quickly pass away from the good land Adonai is giving you. Therefore, you are to store up these words of mine in your heart, in all your being, Tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of a headband around your forehead. Teach them carefully to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you're traveling on the road, 
when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your house, on your gates, so that you and your children will live long in the land that and I swore to your ancestors that he would give them for as long as there is sky above the earth. For if you will take care to obey all these mitzvot I'm giving you, to do them, to love Adonai your God, to follow all his ways, to cling to him, then Adonai will expel all these nations ahead of you and you will dispossess nations bigger and stronger than you are. Wherever the sole of your feet step will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to the Lebanon, from the river, the Euphrates River, to the Western Sea. No one will be able to withstand you. Adonai, your God, will place the fear and dread of you on all the land you step on, just as he told you. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commands of Adonai, your God, that I'm giving to you today. The curse, if you don't listen to the commands of Adonai, your God, but you turn aside from the way I'm ordering you today and you follow other gods that you haven't known. When Adonai, your God, brings you into the land you are entering in order to take possession of it, you are to put the blessing on Mount Gerizim, the curse on Mount Ebal. Both are west of the Jordan in the direction of the sunset in the land of the Canaanites living in the Arabah across from Gilgal near the pistachio trees of Moray. For you are to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land Adonai, your God, is giving to you. You're to own it, live in it. You're to take care to follow all the laws and the rulings I'm setting before you today. Well, so far in Deuteronomy, Moses' sermon has been covering the broad and underlying foundational God principles of the law rather than specific ordinances. He's reviewed Israel's history, God's gracious election of them to be his set-apart people, what happened to them out in the wilderness and how the Lord cared for them, what their attitude should be about the proposition that he's just set before them. That is, Yehovah has made Israel an offer that they certainly can refuse. He has offered to be their God, and in turn, they'll be his people. He has offered to establish a special and unique relationship and union with Israel, but only if they want it. And the way they must show God that they indeed do want it is to ratify this new covenant that has been made at Mount Sinai by agreeing with it corporately and by diligently following its terms. Now look, sometimes we miss a rather significant point about Israel's acceptance of this covenant of Moses. See, it's not that if Israel accepts it that they receive the blessings of that covenant, and if they reject it, they receive the curses contained in that covenant. 
It's that if they choose not to accept the covenant, if they choose to refuse this special offer of friendship with God, then so be it. Israel's just thrown back into the generic pool of nations that forms all the earth's people, the pool from which they were taken out in the first place. And they'll be looked upon as no better, no worse, or any different than any of the rest of them. They will not be eligible, of course, for the special blessings contained in the law, nor will they be subject to the special curses of the law more than any other of the millions of people on planet Earth. See, the deal is, if they do accept the covenant, if they do enter into a special covenant relationship with Yehovah, then, only then, will they be subject to its blessings and its curses. Blessings come from following the terms of the covenant, following its laws. Curses come from violating the terms of the covenant, breaking its laws. However, these blessings and these curses only apply to those whom God has made the covenant. It's not for others. Israel's acceptance of the covenant of Mount Sinai doesn't put pagan, Gentile, Mesopotamia, for instance, under the curses of the law. I tell you this for two reasons. First, because it's a common misconception that those not under the covenant therefore suffer the curses of the law, and those who are under it automatically receive the blessings. And two, because this helps to further cement the reason that Paul went to such length, particularly in his letter to the church at Rome, to explain that Gentiles get grafted into Israel, meaning into Israel's covenants with God, when they come to faith in Messiah Yeshua. If we didn't get grafted into Israel's covenants, then we have no right to partake of their terms. But Gentile Christians, remember this. The covenant does have terms. And when you and I accepted Jesus, we accepted all of the covenant's terms, not just the ones we prefer. Now recall last week that we read that pivotal chapter in Jeremiah 31, whereby it explains that the Lord is going to create a new covenant. This is the one that will later be called the new covenant under Christ. But let's remember with whom that new covenant was being created by and between. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Between the Lord and the house of Judah and the house of Israel, there was to be a new covenant. Essentially between exactly the same people who the covenant of Moses has been established with. Okay. Therefore, the issue for Gentiles is, how do we gain access to the wonderful provisions that Christians call the New Testament that belongs really exclusively to Israel? 
and all who would be joined in Israel. And the answer to that issue is faith in the Jewish Messiah. Yeshua of Nazareth. That's what brings us into the fold. That is the one and only entry ticket allowed and needed for joining into the redemption provided by Israel's covenants. Now verse 1 of chapter 11 opens with the basic foundational rule for Israel that is also the attitude with which Israel is to enter into this covenant relationship with God. Love Him. Notice that immediately upon saying, love him, what that means is laid down. Obey his laws, rules, and commandments. That's loving him. Now there is a subtle but important shift in the issue being dealt with in Deuteronomy 11 versus Deuteronomy chapter 10. In chapter 10, the issue is acceptance or rejection of the covenant relationship with God. Does Israel choose to enter into that covenant that's being offered to them or not? In chapter 11, the issue is that once that covenant's accepted, the next decision for Israel, both corporately and as individuals, is obedience or disobedience to the terms of the covenant and then what the consequences for both are. I want that difference to be really well stamped into your mind, so let me illustrate it. If you want to purchase a home, and you find one you like, and a contract is drawn up, you look that contract over, see what the provisions and the terms that the seller demands, and you make a decision as to whether you want to enter into that contract or not. If you decide no... Well, there's nothing gained or lost except maybe a little time. You have no obligations. There's no penalties that, at this point at least, because there was never an agreed to deal. That's the situation with Israel up to Deuteronomy chapter 10. The contract, the Mosaic Covenant, with all of its terms, the blessings and the curses has been presented to Israel by God through Moses. Now it's up to Israel to enter into the proposed contract or reject it. If they decide no, then there is nothing gained. But there is also no inherent penalty that we're aware of. Now back to the house analogy. If you do decide to accept the terms of that house contract and sign the papers indicating a free will acceptance of its terms, then everything changes at that moment. If you follow through with the terms, you're going to get enjoyment and security of that house. It's going to provide you with wonderful shelter. But if you violate the contract's terms, you lose the house. And often there are stiff penalties to boot. That's what Israel is doing in chapter 11. It's presumed that they have accepted the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. That they have entered into a contract with God. And so now what is being contemplated is what the results will be for following through with the deal as well as the penalties for then violating its terms. See the difference there? 
from verses 2 through 7, Moses explains that he's not asking Israel to take on mere faith the experiences from another generation. But many of them have already personally witnessed what he's calling to mind in their, their own history. Certainly, many Hebrews who are now about 60 years old have even seen what happened back in Egypt because they would have been around 20 when they left Egypt. And this is because, generally speaking, even though most of the first generation of the Exodus were actually all of it had to die off before God allowed them to enter into the promised land, those affected by that curse were 20 years of age and older at the time of the Egyptian Passover. It was that age group, 20 years of age and older, that was considered to be the age of personal accountability. So as you can imagine, all that happened in Egypt and then in those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was pretty vivid and real in the minds of those that were in their, say, 50s, 60s. Not all of those standing before Moses personally experienced everything Moses was speaking about. Most of those alive at that moment were actually born during this arduous journey. However, a great number of Hebrews experienced at least some of it. So they had no reason to doubt Moses or to deny what they had personally seen and witnessed and experienced. Therefore, Moses says in verse 8, If you want to experience the blessings of what the Lord has waiting for you in Canaan, then obey God's commands. The bottom line that you were born as Hebrews is not sufficient for you to be blessed by the good things of the land. Rather, you must also be obedient to the covenant you have just agreed to accept. Obedience was the key to everything that lay ahead for Israel. The next several verses... Seems straightforward, but there's some interesting insights that you might appreciate. Kind of add to their impact, I think. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan are, are here compared and contrasted. And Moses says that Canaan is not at all like Egypt. Because back in Egypt, you had to work to get water to your fields. But in Canaan, God would just water your fields for you. Egypt was a relatively flat land. But Canaan is generally hilly with those resulting valleys. Egypt was like any other land on earth in that when it became pretty much whatever its inhabitants made of it. But Canaan, says the Lord, in verse 12, he looks after and tends. Now let me share something with you that can be maybe a little bit hard to understand. In verse 10, the complete Jewish Bible says that there... Egypt, you would sow your seed and you had to use your feet. Okay, This rather standard English translation is what is called the dynamic translation. And it's probably a good one because what's being described here is indeed the man-made irrigation systems uh, so vital to Egypt's agriculture. A system of canals and reservoirs, um, channels were built to water the fields using the water from the Nile, which was essentially Egypt's only sustainable source of water. 
human feet were used in several different kinds of operations to make the irrigation system work. They used in some cases a kind of water wheel, which was usually human powered. They also employed a shaduf that was essentially a bucket on a rope, all right, that was that with, with one end tied to a lever and a counterbalance at the other end. A person would just dip the bucket into a reservoir of water and then using leverage lift that bucket up and dump it into an irrigation channel. There's a lot of work involved here. Because it was estimated that during the approximately 100 day growing season in Egypt, 1,000 tons of water was needed per acre to get a good crop. That's a lot of water. The system Egypt devised was amazing. They used scores of thousands of these shadus and hundreds of water wheels and several other clever methods as well for getting water into those channels and out to the fields. Now don't confuse this process, by the way, with the natural yearly overflow of the Nile, what they call the inundation, right, during the flooding season, that didn't so much water the land as it provided rich nutrients, right, contained in the silt to fertilize the fields before they were ever planted. Now also understand that Egypt <clears throat> was and remains for the most part a desert. Right, practically no rainfall occurs there at all. Okay. The waters of the Nile come from deep within another area of Africa, way upstream, right, from melting mountain snowpacks. Egypt simply benefits from the river's flow. So with all this as a background, it's easy to imagine how proud Egypt must have felt to have developed this amazing, elaborate irrigation infrastructure and how they felt dependent upon their own efforts their own efforts to grow their crops that situation though would be totally reversed in Canaan in Canaan the lord says they're not going to need human powered irrigation systems instead he'll bring rain from the sky upon their crops and for this all they had to do was wait and be obedient and keep their hearts, their minds, fully set on him. The rains would be sufficient to provide grain for the people. Grapes come from the vines, fruit from the trees, grass for the herds, and they wouldn't have to work to water at all. However, warns Moses, don't fall prey to your own human inclinations by giving the praise for this rain and for these good crops and for the ease at which this was going to happen to one of the Canaanite gods. And of course, that's exactly what the Israelites went off and did. The temptation to misdirect their gratitude would have been great because they were going to live among a people who had long ago cleared that land 
added fertilizers, made stone fences to both pen in the animals and keep them out of the crops. It was a difficult task not to offer sacrifices to the gods of these peoples, even if just trying to be tolerant, to maintain peace with your neighbor. And God says, if you succumb to this evil, then he's going to turn off the spigot. He's going to stop the rain. And the ground will become hard. And Israel will suffer and maybe they won't survive. Therefore, counsels Moses in verses 18 through 21, employ the several God-ordained visual reminders to help you stay faithful to Yehovah. And among these reminders are the Tephilim, the Mesuza, the presence of the priesthood in the tabernacle, and the constant teaching of God's laws from the elders to the children. And if Israel do this, then they will possess that land forever. Now, step one of Israel possessing the land is, of course, for Canaan to be emptied of its current residents. And the Lord says, if Israel will demonstrate love towards God in the form of obedience, then the Lord himself will expel those Canaanites and enable Israel to succeed. Therefore, the promise of victory over Canaan is entirely conditional on Israel following through with the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, those terms contained in what we usually call the law. The extent of the land holdings that Israel would receive is now outlined in verse 24. And only during King David's time did Israel ever possess anything close to this wide range of territory. Take a look how far up to this one. You notice what we see up here? The Euphrates River that runs through Iraq today. The land all the way up here. You see here Hamath? Where's Hamath today? Huh? Hmm? It's, you get it. Hmm? Syria. Alright. Syria and it's right on the border of Lebanon. Okay. So look where this land went. Where is it now? What you see here, Ezion Geber, that today is known as Elat. And many of you have been there. Okay? All this, right, they, they had. Okay? In essence, this is the heavenly ideal for the mass of land set aside for Israel. So before we enter chapter 12 that begins to enumerate the individual laws and rules and what they mean, from verse 26 to the end of this current chapter speaks of the moment of decision for Israel. Now the decision to accept the covenant is foregone. It's done. What is meant here by curse and blessing is that the covenant that they have accepted contains both. So, Israel must decide to abide by what they have agreed to, or they're going to experience God's severity. And the first thing God enjoins Israel from doing is bowing down to the gods of the Canaanites. However, in verses 29 through 30, a different agenda is discussed. 
It is that once they enter into the land with Joshua in the lead, they are to have a ceremony that reaffirms the Mosaic Covenant to which they had agreed about a year after leaving Egypt. And now in Deuteronomy chapter 27, this topic is taken up in more detail. And when we get there, we'll look at it closely. And again, in the book of Joshua in uh, 8, verse 35, we will actually see this ceremony of reaffirmation occurring. Now, why was a renewal, a reconfirmation necessary? You know, it's interesting <clears throat> that this one that they'll do after they get into the land will be the third time that the Mosaic Covenant has been ratified. The first time was out Mount Sinai. The second is what we've just covered here, the last couple chapters of Deuteronomy, in the land, while they were in the land of Moab. And then this third time will be after Israel has entered the promised land. At least one theory about the reason for this series of reaffirmations is that it was customary of most covenants and treaties of that era. In other words, when a leader with whom a treaty was made died, then the new leader had to revalidate that covenant and this was accomplished with a ceremony. Moses died after the second agreement to affirm the covenant. And so with Joshua as the new leader of Israel, the third affirmation was required, at least in the eyes of Middle Eastern people of that era. But again, in the eyes of the people, it also probably had to do with leaving behind the spiritual authority of one territory and entering into a spiritual sphere of influence of another territory. That is, as Israel left Mount Sinai, the dwelling place of Jehovah, and entered into Moab, where another god was thought to rule, it would have been customary to reaffirm a treaty with the spiritual authority over that land. Recall as we've discussed on numerous occasions that the ancients thought that various gods controlled various parcels of land. So, since it was a basic necessity of all treaties that a vow was made, and that a vow by definition meant invoking the name of a god, and the name of the God invoked had to be the one who was in charge of the territory where the treaty was made, all right, then you take all that into circumstance and you understand why they need these reaffirmations every time they moved. Okay? If one were in Egypt, then Egypt's God would necessarily have to be invoked. If one were in Moab, a different God would have to be invoked. By reaffirming the Mosaic Covenant in the land of Moab the name of Yehovah's authority was being attached to that territory. By reaffirming the covenant yet again in Canaan, Yehovah's authority was being extended to that tory, territory. Again, this is in the minds of the people. It's not a spiritual reality. Now it's interesting as well that the place where this covenant reaffirmation took place 
was defined as Mount Gerizim and, of course, Mount Ebal. The road to Shechem cuts in between them. Okay? And um, with Gerizim to the south of the road, Ebal to the north. Now, Now, what's interesting is that on Mount Gerizim, the blessings of the Torah were to be pronounced. On Mount Ebal, the curses were to be proclaimed. Believe it or not, there's actually logic and pattern behind this choice. Okay. Now recall our study of the spiritual significance of the direction east. Okay. Also recall in our study of how the encampment of Israel was ordered such that certain groups were assigned permanent camping locations according to the four major compass directions. East is always preeminent. So when one faces East, what direction is to your right? South. Okay. When facing east, Mount Gerizim was to the right, to the south. Since the right side is the mighty side and the more regal side, then Mount Gerizim was given the privilege of having the covenant blessings read from it. As one faces east, north is to the Left. Okay? And to the north was Mount Ebal. Now, left isn't necessarily a cursed compass direction. It's just not as good or as mighty as the right or south. So the curses of the law were, were pronounced from Mount Ebal that was on the left side, the north side. And by the way, these two mountains, the very place where the covenant of Moses was reaffirmed, now lies in what the world calls disputed territory, the so-called West Bank. That'll do it for tonight. We'll get into chapter 12 next week.